So today we are going to be talking about Baptist belief, specifically Baptist essential. But let me begin with a word of prayer with our heads. Oh Lord God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for this church. God, as we discuss what it means to be a Baptist, may we see how rich the theology is and why this actually matters. And may we understand what we believe and why. And God, I ask that you bless this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We attend a Baptist church. But let me ask you this, and I actually want to see a raise of hands. Do you guys know why you attend a Baptist church versus a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or even a Catholic church? Who knows why they actually attend a Baptist church? Okay. salvation, that isn't necessarily just a Baptist distinction, is even Presbyterian. But that would be why we attend a Reformed Baptist church. But Presbyterian hold to some of the exact same beliefs. We could just say they're Reformed, they just don't baptize the way we do. So there are a few unique things that a Baptist believes versus Lutherans, Presbyterians, and other common Christian denominations. First, the most obvious one is baptism. At a Baptist church, we only baptize born-again believer through full immersion. And the reason for this is our understanding of who is actually part of the covenant community. A Presbyterian will say that the kids are part of the covenant community. They would deny that they're saved in one sense. They would say still, they still need to be born again, but because they're part of the community, in the same way that the Israelites went under circumcision, they say that in the Christian church, you should be baptized the Baptist distinction is actually what we call a discontinuity versus a continuity between the Old and New Testament. So although there are some connections between the Old and New Testament, there's more discontinuity dealing with baptism. And so who we believe is part of the covenant matters a lot in Baptist theology. Who is actually part of the church? A Lutheran will say that everyone who's attending that church, if they're saved or not, they're part of that church. Versus a Baptist would say only the born-again believers can be part of that church, which impacts how we do church membership. And then even going a step farther, how we do the other ordinance of the Lord's Supper, we do the Lord's Supper very differently than a Presbyterian or Lutheran church because, uh, because any belief that will baptize an infant, why wouldn't you just let them take the Lord's Supper? But we take the Lord's Supper later today, as Pastor Rolla will say every single time, tell your kids this is not snack time. And so because of our understanding of who's part of the covenant and who is part of the church, it dictates how we take the Lord's Supper. So there's three different positions. There's an open position, which says anyone can take part of the Lord's Supper. It will be a blessing towards everyone. We do not hold to that position. 
because we say that only those who have been born again should take part in the Lord's Supper. And even within a Baptist belief, there are two differing views. There's a closed position and a semi-closed position. The closed position believes that only church members of that local church should take the Lord's Supper. That is not what we hold to. Um, at this church, we believe in a, what's almost called a semi-closed, which means as long as you are a believer, not under church discipline, you may take part in the Lord's Supper. So here, as part of our Baptist belief, anyone who is a Christian may take part of the Lord's Supper versus a Lutheran, Presbyterian, will say anyone can take part of the Lord's Supper. So those are two distinctions dealing with the ordinances. Another distinction of Baptist theology is their local autonomy, which means their ability to self-regulate themselves. And this is in direct opposition to how typically a Presbyterian church will govern. In a Presbyterian model, they have an overall like, group of people that can actually put a pastor directly into your church, into your congregation, without the congregation's permission. They believe in a larger autonomy, where you have a group of bishops that makes um, plans of which pastor will go to what church. And the local church could have their pastor taken away in a moment's notice, and that larger group of bishops can make changes to your church without being directly involved. Versus a Baptist understanding is typically called congregationalism, which means that local congregation makes decisions for that church. And that's part of the reason that Paul will tell Timothy when he's choosing local leaders how to make the decisions. He's saying, within your congregations, you make decisions for your local pastors, and here's how you do it. It's not an overall structure where you have a, past, a pastor placed into a church. So a Baptist distinction is the local autonomy of that church where the congregation makes the decisions, which impacts how does one become a pastor. That local congregation chooses who the pastor are. And because of that, that's a natural consequence of church membership. It is those who are members or who have covenant with the church are able to make decisions for that local body, which then naturally flows into church discipline. If you have church membership, there must be a way for discipline to happen within a local church. So what is unique about Baptist beliefs? The way that we do ordinances, both in the baptism and the Lord's Supper, how we understand the local autonomy of the church, which impacts how we do church membership and how we do church discipline. These are all Baptist essentials. But then the very important question, and what we're going to be answering today is, well, what dictates what a church is? Can any place just be called a church? So first, we're going to break down what a church is, but I kind of want to break down some of the issues that have arisen in our modern culture and why they're so against church. It is very common for people to say, I hate religion, but I love Jesus. I hate religion. Sometimes they say, I hate the church, but I love Jesus Christ. And that has become very popular for people to just do away with anything church, and they will just say, I'm a spiritual person, not a religious person. I love Jesus, I love God, but I don't want to have anything to do with the church. Julian, yes? Just, uh, um, it's funny because like religion, the definition is to ascribe supreme importance to something, and we all make religion to something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going with that, 
the issue that people are pushing back in is actually a valid concern they see. They want to have this importance in their lives, but they have seen hypocrisy within the church. They have seen abuse of power. Sometimes they just don't like what churches believe, so they make up their own religion and their own beliefs. But a lot of people nowadays just want to push the idea of a church and the practices of the church, the rituals, and they want to do away with it. And so they will distance themselves away from a church, sometimes because it's boring, not relevant, filled with hypocrisy, self-righteous people. And in one sense, people are right. There are churches that because they allow for church members to be in sin, that gives a bad name to Jesus Christ. So it's because someone who claims to be a Christian has now wronged an unbeliever, they then think all Christians are hypocrites, judgmental, self-righteous. They're recognizing an issue. That's why church discipline is so important. When church discipline happens, it sanctifies the larger body of Christ, and it actually points out to people, you're not a Christian. You should not claim the name of Christ because you are giving the name of Jesus Christ a bad reputation that becomes a hindrance to the unbelieving world. But when the church is properly sanctified, properly serving the community, properly loving its local members and the community, that the church becomes a great blessing and a great light to an unbelieving world. So what is the church? Let's break down what the church is not. A church is not a building, which in one sense, the common vocabulary of how we say, I'm going to church, is not correct. The church is not a building. If this building were to burn down, there would still be a church. The Church of First Baptist of the Lake will just meet right outside with some folding chairs and in some shade, but we would still meet together and worship God because the church is in a building. We meet in buildings, but some places meet in a YMCA or a school or a house. Or even in the Old Testament or the New Testament in Acts, you see them having church services right by a lake. Yes, Brother Christian? <laughs> and so the church is way more than the place that we meet church is also not just a random group of Christians meeting together so if we all go if we have a few people go out for lunch and it just happens to be a group of Christians that does not dictate a church if we went out and watched a football game, that would not be a church. Now, the church is an assembly. It is a gathering, but it is more than just a random group of Christians meeting together. So let me point the actual definition of a church. And this is on the second, the inside page of your handout. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through the gospel preaching and the gospel ordinances. I'm going to come back to that definition in a little bit, but first I want to go through some of the uses of the word church in the Bible. The word church is the Greek word ekklesia, 
and it's actually used over 100 times. And the ESV is used about 114 times, and there's a few different uses. So there are some strange uses in the book of Acts. Um, but I'll kind of break down a few of the definitions. So church, the word ecclesia, typically just means a called out one or an assembly. And that word gets used in three different ways. It's sometimes translated as church, rightfully so. It sometimes gets translated as congregation. It gets used like that in Hebrews and Acts. And it's sometimes translated as an assembly. So the weird case in the book of Acts is actually not a group of Christians, but an angry mob that's trying to attack Paul. And that's really just used as a group of people that are assembling for a common purpose, which kind of does sound like our youth of church, but this one's just a form of an angry mob. It's the context where Paul is going into a town and the people believe that Paul had brought a Gentile into the inner courts and they're ready to create a mob. And they do, and that's where the, um, the Roman govern, um, governor has to actually protect Paul from being stoned to death. But that is uh, ecclesia. It was an assembly of people united for one purpose. In that case, they kill Paul. But the other uses typically are used either as a local church or a global church. The first use of it is actually in Matthew 16 by Jesus himself. So let's turn there. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. Now, when Jesus came into the districts of Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now keep those words in the back of your mind. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's the first use. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom and of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged his disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Christ. The Catholics will try to twist this verse to make it sound like Peter is the first pope and he is the head of the church. And this goes back to what Jesus is saying in verse 18. Let's kind of break this down. And I tell you, you are Peter. And Peter can mean like the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. So it's, it's almost a play of words. But Jesus isn't saying, Peter, you are the rock. And you, the rock, I'm going to build the church. He's actually saying, Peter, addressing his name, and he says, on this rock I will build my church. The question is, what is this rock of what Jesus is referring to? It's the statement that Paul or um, Peter made about Jesus. So Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? And then he directs it, no, who do you say that I am. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is the rock by which Jesus will build his church. It is the statement that Jesus is the Christ. Brothers, sisters, that is the very statement that unites all of us 
together. It is because we can rightfully say that Jesus is our Lord, he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we can come together as a church. We can all make that statement, and we can all hold to that belief, and that's what's uniting us together as a local church. It is because we believe in that statement. So it has nothing to do with Peter being the first pope and him having the keys. That's not what we're referring to. The church is built on the statement that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is the Christ. So that use of the word church would actually be the global church. All Christians, the global church will be built upon that statement. So the global church use also gets brought up a few other times. So first we're going to go into global use of the word church. In Ephesians 5, where it talks about wives and husbands, Ephesians 5, verse 22 through 27, this is going to be a use of the word church in a global sense. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also the wife should submit in everything to their husband. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the water, by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and blameless. So that's not saying that Jesus died for First Baptist Church of the Lake. It's saying that Jesus Christ died for all the called out believers who make the statement that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Colossians 1, it says, and he, being Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. That's a global use of the word church. So throughout the Bible, there are a few references to the overall church being used in such a way that saying every single born-again Christian throughout all history. More often, when the word church is used, it's actually in reference to a local congregation. And Jesus uses that definition right after Matthew 16, where he talks about Peter, in Matthew 18, during church discipline. He starts laying out the rules for church discipline. The first step is to go to the individual by themselves. The second step is to go to the person with two or three, and if they do not listen, it says, Matthew 18, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is not saying that if we do church discipline, we're supposed to make a YouTube video and publish it to the whole world and making the announcement that this person is a sinner and they need to repent and everyone treat them like an unbeliever. Jesus is not referring and not using the word church like that. He's saying that that local congregation that is in charge of that person must deal with that person as, as Jesus has prescribed. It's not a, to all Christians everywhere, do this. It's directly in context to a local church. When Paul is writing to different churches, he always begins his letter to the church of God that is in uh, Corinthians or to the church of Thessalonica. Sometimes he does include a larger group to the churches of Galilee, which is just in the region of, of Galilee. So all the churches in this area, but that's in reference to all the local churches. It's not saying that 
all, not think all the churches in Nevada are together one church and should all be united things. No, this letter is supposed to go to each of the churches and just be passed around. So the word church is typically used as a local congregation, and there are just a few uses of church in a global sense, such as Jesus Christ died for his church. So again, going back to our definition, let's break it down. A local church is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one, one another's membership in Jesus Christ and his kingdom through gospel preaching and the gospel ordinances. A local church, a local congregation meets together in one sense to hold each other accountable. It is in one sense we are to keep one another accountable. A little bit later, we're going to go through all of the responsibilities of a membership um, during next week. But I will talk about all the one another's of Scripture shortly. So when we gather together in an official capacity like today, we hold one another accountable, but there's also gospel preaching and gospel ordinances. So today, we will be taking the Lord's Supper. We will also be hearing the word of God spoken to us. So, again, this is so much more than just a small group of Christians meeting together just to have a good time. There is intentional things happening when the church gathers. We are to gather for worship, to hold one another accountable, to perform the means of grace or the ordinances. All these things are intentionally done in a church service. So at a church, there's intentional aspects being done. We are intentional about how our worship service is done. And there's very specific ways that we model how we do church based on other passages of the Bible. This is partly because in the New Testament, the way that the church is referred has different metaphors that it uses. So in the next part, you'll see New Testament pictures of the church. A church is a body. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is in the context of spiritual gifts. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, the many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were baptized into the body, Jews and Greeks, slave and free, and were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I, knew, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear shall say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, Jesus arranged the members in the body, each one of their own, as he chooses. A local church metaphor is used for a body, which means each one of us who is part of the church has a different gift for the benefit of this local congregation. Some people have been given a gift of teaching, some a gift of prayer, Mercy, kindness, service. If you are a Christian, you have been given a spiritual gift 
for the benefit of the larger body of Christ. And you are to use that gift to build up and to benefit everyone else. It is because of the Holy Spirit's wisdom that he has given certain people certain gifts purely to be used to benefit other people. So if someone's given the gift of teaching, it isn't to stroke their ego and make them feel more important because they're up in front of people. It is to teach the word, to benefit the congregation, to encourage them. These spiritual gifts are to be used for the building up of that local congregation, of that local church. Another use of New Testament metaphor is actually a flock. So 1 Peter chapter 5. Let's turn there. So the metaphor is a flock of sheep. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who, are in, who you are in charge, but be an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading glory, crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humidity, humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Another way that the church is referred to is a flock. Now, the flock has a shepherd, and the shepherd is to care for that church. So in the same way that a shepherd cares for the sheep and protects them from danger, guides them to water and food, at a local church level, the pastors or the elders are supposed to take care of the church body that has been that God has put in charge to bless them, to not do it in a domineering way, not for shameful gain, but we are to look to Jesus Christ as the example. As we talked about earlier, Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. We are to, elders are to look to Jesus Christ as the example, what it means to guide and care for the flock. Earlier in 1 Peter, there's actually two more metaphors. So turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. And these are mixed together. So this is verses 1 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. You're going to see both the metaphor used for a spiritual house and a priesthood. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the context is we are born again to a living hope. Peter then encourages the people to a holy lifestyle. And so chapter 2 begins with so. So because you've been called to a holy lifestyle, so put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men that is in the sight chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. There's a house metaphor. And then the next one. To be a holy priesthood to the spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put 
put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, for, but by those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone and a stumbling block and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word and they were designed to do so. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into a marvelous light. We at First Baptist Church of the Lake are being built. God is building up this local congregation as a house. He's laying a foundation, or I should say he laid the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, and we are being built up. But the other metaphor is a holy priesthood. So just like in the Old Testament, how you had priests performing daily services that were for the glory of God and for his pleasure, we are to be a royal priesthood performing these duties for his glory. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into light. And we're going to come back to that a little bit because that is actually why the church is called to be separate and holy and not part of the world. We'll come back to that in just a little bit as one of our implications of what the church is. So what's the point of all these metaphors? The point is a local church lives together with the structure and purpose laid out in meeting together and they are set up to live in such a way that is like a body for the common building up with a shepherd in charge of us. And we do this for the glory of God. Because of this, it is very important how we treat our local brothers and sisters in Christ. In the scripture, there are over 30 one another passages, which means there are 30 plus verses that say, how are we to treat other Christians? I'm going to read through them. Some of them are repeats. I'm going to try to skip them. But this is a list of how we are to treat one another. Be devoted to one another with brotherly love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Live in harmony with one another. Do not judge, but build up one another. Welcome one another. Instruct one another. Do not sue one another. Care for one another. Do not provoke or envy one another. Bear one another's burdens. Speak truthfully to one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Be submissive to one another. Teach and admonish one another. Increase and abound in love for one another. Confront one another. Encourage and build up one another. Be at peace with one another. Seek good for one another. Pray for one another. Stir one another up. Do not speak against one another. Do not grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Be hospitable to one another. Serve one another. Be humble towards one another. Greet one another. Have fellowship with one another. Do not deprive one another. Wait for one another. Consider one another and do not lie to one another. Going back to the body metaphor, we are given spiritual gifts to build up one another, but there's also commands of how we treat one another in the church. So a local church is a blessing if we follow these commands. A church can become a very despite, um, a very bad place if the local church is not loving one another. And that's why the unbelieving world sometimes looks at churches and just says, that's not a very loving place. That's a very hostile place, judgmental. And that can partly be due to church discipline not being performed on members, but it can also be because that local church forgets that church membership has duties and responsibilities that they must perform. 
and it's these duties and responsibilities that are the one another's. So when you make a covenant with this church, you do have obligations. You do have things that is required of you to do at this local church for this local congregation. Let's talk about some implications that that then leads to. One of the implications is that the church is to be the focal point of God's plan to display his glory to the nations. Jesus himself says that the unbelieving world will see how great God is by the love that a Christian has for one another's. God's glory will be on display by the way that the church loves one another. So if we actually believe that we are a body, that will dictate how we treat one another, which will then entail bring glory to God when we do it rightfully. And as a second implication, the church is to be distinct from the world, which goes back to that first Peter passage, where we are called to be a holy priesthood. We are not to give into the sins of this world, because when the church becomes indistinguishable from the world, we are not being effective witnesses and that will only bring shame upon the church. Because people will look at the church and say, there's no difference. That's just a different group of people meeting because they like to, but they don't see the glory of God being worked out because that church could just be in sin. And then the message of the cross has no power. And that's because the people are not living holy and distinct from this world. Let me ask some questions. Let's just get a discussion. Based on what I've been talking about, why should a church decide to not be multi-site or multi-serviced? Based on a discussion, why should a church not be multi-site or multi-service? What are your thoughts? So, you know, multi-site, multi-service, is because the, the one another don't happen, right? Because I don't see, I don't, it, it becomes then a virtual church because there's no such thing, right? It becomes a very unbiblical uh, because there's part of what happens with the preaching, with the singing, with the communion, is the community of together. And when we are apart, we're not together by definition. Yes. Any other thoughts? Very good, Cedric. Why should the church not be multi-site or multi-service? Like, there are some mega churches that will do a live feed all the way to a different campus. Be like, okay, we have a downtown church and we just put a big screen and everyone watches the pastor there. Will not know how to serve the body or who to serve Exactly. Pastor Corey? Can you explain that in the context of a multi-site? So with a multi-site church, I'm assuming what you mean is, is that it's, it's a building full of people with a screen and the pastor is 200 miles away. So yep. at best, what's happening is, is that group of people, they hear him preach an uh, hour-long sermon and they never see him again. 
doesn't know what's going on in their life. He can't be praying for them properly. He can't be discipling them properly. There's no way he can be doing his job unless he knows those people personally. I would argue that um, not only should you add in that multi-site, but a church can get too large yeah. for I think there needs to be, and I'm not going to be like dogmatic about this, but there can, it can be a point to where you have more people than that can in, in an individual pastor can pastor. Amen. Yep. Brother Christian. I know besides the deaf cameraman, we would like to hear what others are saying. So if they would stand up and please project their voice, because I know there are others who want to hear what they have to say. Thank you. Big Ben, do you have something to say? Okay. So the reason that we should not be multi-site and multi-service is in one sense, the pastor cannot effectively shepherd that many people, or shepherd people he's never even met before. We'll be talking about that in a couple of weeks of the role of the pastor. And if the pastor cannot actually shepherd that congregation, how can you even call it a church? Julian. Yeah. So my question would be, all right, so for example, in our church, we have, here we go again. Here we go again. In our church, stand up, please. <laughs> Thank you. In our church, we have four pastors, right? How do how do four pastors pastor everyone in our church? Would you say it's delegated to some of the more mature brothers? How, how does that work? How can four pastors pastor everyone? How are they talking to everybody um, effectively? So Julian asked, how can four pastors even shepherd? A congregation this large. So in one sense, that's why church membership matters. So the amount of people that we actually have as members is smaller than the larger congregation. But I'm going to let Pastor Corey answer that question. So, uh, <laughs> one of the things is, is that we, only have, we have a responsibility to shepherd the people who have covenanted with us. There are a lot of people who attend this church we see regularly, they just attend regularly. They come after the song or song and they leave before the benediction. And they haven't covenanted with us. So for that reason, we don't feel as though we have the responsibility to shepherd them as being a part of this local flock. Okay, so you don't count those people. Right? The people who have covenanted with us are the people that we have a responsibility to share, like as pastors. So when you when you get rid of that number, that number gets a lot smaller. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing, because it's four of us, we can delegate, like to Julian's point, we can delegate out different, you know, whose time is available, when, or whatnot. And lastly, because as you have older, more mature saints, if everybody in the church is actually doing their job, when you have more mature saints in the church, it's actually easier for us to pastor a group of people. Like some of the more mature people are not going to need as much care and attention as some of the more infantile ones will. So because we have a mixture of that in here, it's not as difficult as, you know, if we had 10,000 people, right? And not to mention we pray that the Lord will add elders to this church so that, I mean, I don't think you can have too many good elders, regardless of the size of the church. Pastor Rollo? Um, I think I came in the right <laughs> <laughs> uh, To Julian's point, you know, in bap Baptistic circles, there's this idea of what's called congregational care. So, because the reality is, four pastors cannot have face-to-face -face time with every single person unless they're willing to do their part, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea of congregational care is we all care for each other. We all pray for each other. We all 
serve. We all give uh, of our time, and when there's people who are hungry, we give food, and people are sick, we give medicine, right? So that's why every Sunday from the pulpit, we hear about D groups. Why D groups is a form of congregational care. So that, that's how, and, and to Pastor Corey's point, which I totally agree with, uh, what Pastor Corey is not saying is we're not going to pastor, per se, non-members. We do it, right? We're not going to say, oh, because you're not a member, we can't help you. But our primary responsibility, our primary responsibility is to those who have covenanted here. Mm -hmm. We help everyone, but our primary time and goal and resources is to the members. Oh, one other thing real quick. Good deacons. Stand up, please. Stand Good deacon, good deacon, help tremendously, help the pastors tremendously shepherd a church this size. Because some of those things that Pastor Rolo is talking about, we can delegate that to the deacons of the church. Like some phys the physical needs, the church, because we have such great deacons, they take care of those things, and we hand those, we can hand those things off to them and be assured that they actually take care of them. So it's a, it's a deacons are a blessing. So let me just kind of sum up what we've been talking about today. This is a Baptist essential course that we're going through, and we just discussed what is the church. And we are already seeing how this is going to apply to church membership, church governance, the Lord's table, baptism, just based on what is a church. Next week, we are actually going to talk fully about what is church membership, but just based on what is the church, the church is a local group of believers that regularly and intentionally meet together for the hearing of the word, for serving one another. So based on the time, I'm going to pray for us, and then you guys will be dismissed. Oh Lord God, we thank you for the church, and that you have, you have died for the church. God, I pray that this church here at First Baptist may glorify you, and may we bring honor to your holy name. God, help us to live in a way that does this, that the unbelieving world will see the light of Christ shine, and may we be an effective church for ministering to the world, but may we also love one another in a way that honors you. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.